Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. So hi, Neil, how was your weekend? Um, it was good, but um, I don't know about you, but I have dreams sometimes you know, about whether I've studied for my final exam, or in this case, I have some dreams where I'm about to do the radio show and I'm not there yet. And as you know, our esteemed engineer just put us together five seconds before the show. So we weren't even able to say hello to our guests. So I apologize, Dr. Cole, for not being able to talk to you before the show, uh, but it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. That's all right by me. <laughs> so in other good news, let's let's change change the dynamic around. We got an inch of rain, so that's exciting. Is that all we got? Well, I heard at least an inch when I woke up this morning. Oh, well, it's, it just stopped. It just stopped. Uh, of course, I have three dogs, so rain is, is a double-edged sword for me. They don't like the water. <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. So do we have any um, articles this week? Well, let me ask you a question before that. Do we have a guest? We do. So that was, that was the informal introduction. <laughs> we are thrilled to have with us. Dr. Rachel Coe, Professor of Finance at CSU CI. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us. So the first article I have um, is entitled, um, Adding Money Smarts to the Curriculum. Uh, the number of, <coughs> of states requiring high schoolers to learn about personal money management uh, ticks higher in 2021, as Florida is, po is poised to join the group shortly. Uh, that brings the number to 23 states that have uh, financial literacy um, in uh, elementary and high schools. And uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the idea here is uh, to... Uh, make sure students understand savings, credit, interest rates, investing, and risk assessment. Uh, Two-thirds of Generation Z adults, for example, couldn't correctly answer more than half the financial questions uh, when surveyed about just basic finance. Um, that was one article. Two days later, in the Wall Street Journal, there's the counter-argument. And this is by the intelligent investor, and it says, learning the wrong investing lessons. And it talks about exactly the same thing, the proliferation of education for uh, schoolers. Uh, but he points out that many of these uh, uh, curriculum involve uh, model portfolios where the student is awarded uh, success based upon a 10-week portfolio performance. 
And um, as he, uh, I think, tongue in cheek says, uh, this is this is like making driver's education exciting by teaching kids to run red lights and crash into brick walls. Um, the idea of judging students based upon their ability to trade, um, he says, and I agree, is really quite astounding. It has nothing to do with investing. It has to do with, uh, with at best, speculation. And so uh, what he is suggesting is that if you're going to teach uh, high schoolers and elementary school students about finance, it should be about savings rates and about uh, basic uh, financial considerations that one makes as, as a young person, not about whether you can beat the stock market over a 10-week period. I completely agree with that. And, you know, it harkens back to, I know when I was in high school, there was always a period of time where everyone would pick stocks out of the newspaper and look up how they did the next day and track your performance and you were graded as such. And as an adult, I always thought that that was a crazy way to grade people on their ability to pick stocks based upon, you know, at that point in time, newspaper clippings, basically. And so I do think that what really needs to be being taught isn't so much the what stock is doing the best, but really what how you should think about the growth of money and how what compounding interest does to people's futures and, and how saving and not spending everything you make is really the answer to living a life without the stress of not never having enough money. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wonder how much of this is partly is, is partly one of the causes of uh, what we've seen uh, in the mem stock craziness, I wonder how many of those crazies that are investing in uh, momentum stocks without knowing anything about the stocks is partly because they took these these crazy courses. Um, the next article, and and the next two or three articles, you know, Dr. Cole could probably help us with as well. The first one is called "The Threat of Stagflation Rattles Central Banks." Uh, banks. Uh, the war in Ukraine is casting a stagflationary shadow over the world economy and posing a dilemma for central banks. Should they support flagging growth or fight skyrocketing inflation? They face the risk of having to squeeze their economies hard and drive up unemployment to get inflation in check. Um, and so what we're seeing here is this, you know, sort of uh, uh, push-pull uh, if they act too aggressively to uh, slow inflation, they could actually uh, create a recession and at the same time not solve the inflationary problem, which could lead to um, stagflation, which, as we saw in Japan for 20 years, is actually quite worse than inflation. As you know, Keen said, you, you can pull a string, but you can't push a, a string. So, Dr. Cole, do you, do you agree with that, that there's a risk of stagflation? Um, yeah, first of all, I'm sorry that I got disconnected. This rarely happens, um, but I don't know what happened, but hopefully it will stay this way. But yeah, um, it, it is an interesting topic that you brought up on stagflation. That's a topic that a lot of people are worried about. And um, yeah, it is definitely concerning because, you know, stagflation is literally a combination of inflation and stagnation. And stagflation is known to be very difficult to fight and difficult to resolve and takes longer to you know, get out of. Uh, with inflation alone, um, 
contractionary fiscal or monetary policy will you know, decrease demand and decrease supply. Um, but if we have stagnation, we have very little wiggle room to um, decrease demand directly or indirectly. So if we have contractionary aggressive uh, monetary policy, um, it will more likely to worsen uh, stagnation. So the government will be put in a dilemma as um, it cannot really use you know, expansionary policy to get out of stagnation um, because it will bring inflation, but inflation is already there. So, so back to your question of, you know, is stagflation coming? Um, well, it is possible that it is, it might be coming, it might be on the way. So, but I don't think anyone really knows the, uh, the answer for sure. So it is really helpful to go back in history, like you brought up Japan. Um, an example that I can think of is the time of 1970s when we had a, a big stagflation in, in the U.S. And um, it's helpful to compare how things were back then versus right now. And uh, um, on a more optimistic side, um, things were a lot worse back then than versus now. So the, what caused the oil price rise back then in 1970s was the OPEC oil embargo. And OPEC accounted for more than 60% of the global oil production. Whereas right now, Russian uh, oil production uh, is really less than 10% of the global um, the, the, the final two articles we have today, and they're sort of paired like the, the one about um, uh, teaching uh, students in elementary and high schools, is about the flattening uh, of the yield curve. And the yield curve is flattening, meaning that the, the difference between short-term and long-term rates is, is not only small, but in 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 some ways, it's approaching where long-term rates are lower than short-term rates, which historically, uh, some believe, uh, means that we're heading towards a recession. Uh, an upward-sloping yield curve should, which is normal, uh, should indicate that uh, rates will be will increase over a thirty-year period uh, because um, the economy will be growing and uh, the uh, Fed will have to. Um, uh, uh, keep rates. Uh, uh, well, it, it would 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 have to um, uh, compensate for the difference between uh, short and long term rates, as uh, long term rates uh, won't be cut. Won't be uh, won't be cut. Um, the other article says not so fast. Um, the other article says the yield curve has been inverted every, before every recession, but. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could just be there's a difference between cause and effect. And what what this article in the Wall Street Journal points out is that the current yield curve um, is uh, flat for America, but in Europe and Russian, both uh, are, uh, are reliant on uh, the energy problems. The yield curve is actually sloping upward. So you could make a case that if it was determinative that a flattening yield curve results in recession, then why is the economy of Germany and uh, Russia have an upward sloping yield curve? 
Well, I think what I've always known as an inverted yield curve is what most people, uh, the flattening is concerning, but the inversion is what really is uh, predictive of uh, upcoming recession, but not always. And so I, I think there is a slight difference between the two. And it's worth noting that we are not in an inverted shape of the yield curve as of today. Um, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 FM and 96.9 FM. And we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So Dr. As you know, I'll introduce you again. We are thrilled to welcome to the show, Dr. Rachel Coe, who is the prof a professor of finance at CSUCI. So Dr. Coe, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and how you got involved in being a professor of finance. Hi, um, I'm Rachel Cole. I'm an assistant professor of finance at Channel Island. I am originally from South Korea. Um, I was born and raised there until I was 14. Then my family came over to the US. Ever since then, I've been in the US. I've been educated here, went to college here, and finished my graduate studies here. Um, 
And then I'm in California now teaching finance. Um, so how I became a professor in finance is, I guess I have been interested in finance um, while I was an econ major back in undergrad. So I began pursuing uh, finance as my PhD major um, uh, at my graduate school. And then it was sort of natural that, you know, the transition was natural for me to graduate and then become a professor in finance. So you said you, you came to California. Where did you, when you, once you immigrated to the U.S., where, where did your parents immigrate to? Um, so we first settled in um, Bloomington, Indiana. Um, and then I, we were in Texas. And that's where I spent my high school and for college, I was in the state of New York. I was in Ithaca. I went to Cornell. And then I went to Amherst, Massachusetts um, at UMass Amherst, finishing my PhD. So I've been um, moving from place to place quite a bit. And then you thought to yourself, where is the best weather in the world? And you moved out here. <laughs> There's no doubt California. <laughs> and it feels so refreshing to have rain today. Um, it's just great. Um, weather after rain, especially. Absolutely. I'm hoping, I think everyone's hoping it settles down the allergies. Yes. So now when you were going through your academic studies, did you always think that you wanted to go into teaching or did you think you wanted to do something more, um, you know, hands-on as opposed to teaching? Um, the, when I started, the first time I started teaching was in my PhD, I had to teach a certain number of, number of classes as a graduate instructor. Um, and that's when I really took interest in teaching and I started thinking like, well, maybe teaching is for me. But before then entering into PhD, I uh, literally had no idea I would become a professor. I think I could imagine myself more in the industry but it turns out this job is um, going pretty well for me. And so what, what ages do you teach at, at the university? Do you do freshman classes or senior classes? Um, currently, I'm teaching like introduction to finance class, which is for junior students in the third year. Um, and I teach some upper level classes in finance, like finance, like 400 levels. Um, those are for senior students mostly. So given the last couple years with COVID and the pandemic, you know, affecting education as greatly as it has, what has been your takeaways of how the student population has really dealt with COVID? And do you see things changing as um, COVID restrictions start to lift? Um, so yeah, COVID was definitely a challenging time for both the faculty and our students. Uh, as for me, um, having to stay home for work and not being able to be on campus and not being able to teach in person and, and being able to engage with students, that was a challenge for me. Um, and having to fully transition to um, online teaching in a very short time was difficult as well. I actually had to go back and forth between here and Korea to be with my family because all my family is now in Korea. And I had to teach over there 
um, over Zoom uh, because, you know, being here all by myself and not being able to go to work or outside was very challenging. It felt very lonely here. So I had to actually be with my family. So admittedly, um, if I had a difficult time, then everybody else did. And that goes the same for students as well, even more. And how well students overcame this situation, really, I think it depended on their um, economic background and their family situation. Um, some students got through it all without having to go through much pain, but um, a handful of students I noticed did take the hit um, and had very much difficulty. Um, so when it comes to education during such difficult time, faculty had to you know, play the role of making virtual classes an, an easier environment to uh, learn. And given that you were between two countries, it's kind of a fascinating um, point of view that you had just in general, how different countries handled the pandemic. Would you say South Korea handled it in a more, ex, ex, you know, a, a, a better way than say the US, which seemed to struggle along the way of, of different uh, messages, I guess. Um, so South Korea was definitely um, doing better in terms of containing the spread of the virus in, in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so last year, um, Korea had the least number of like, confirmed cases, but right now um, the things have not been so good over there. I know that it um, now has reached uh, 10 million cases um, of Omicron uh, confirmed cases, um, and it has sort of peaked. So I'm really hoping that um, things will turn around quickly uh, since it has uh, picked now, the only way it goes is downward. So um, yeah, so things are better in the US. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. The Family Service Agency is the oldest nonprofit human service agency in Santa Barbara County. Today, Family Service Agency continues to provide vital services to meet the changing needs of our community. Our mission is to strengthen and advocate for families and individuals of all ages and diversities, helping to create and preserve a healthy community. Family Service Agency programs are available throughout Santa Barbara County. Whatever the issue, disaster information, relief, lack of basic necessities, family violence, isolation, depression, or threat of suicide, marital problems, parenting difficulties, or children at risk, 
The Family Service Agency can make a fundamental difference in people's lives. Our services are offered to all people of all ages on a sliding fee or donation scale, and many are free due to the generous donations of businesses, foundations, and individuals. The Family Service Agency of Santa Barbara for everyone who needs us since 1899. For more information, dial 211 for our free confidential 24-hour information and referral helpline, or if on your cell phone, dial 965-1001, that's 965-1001, or the website fsacares.org. Hey, watch where you park. Please, never drive your vehicle onto dry grass or brush. Hot exhaust pipes, catalytic converters, and mufflers can start fires that you won't even see until it's too late. Properly maintain your vehicle. Worn-out brake pads may not be able to stop you and can cause metal-on-metal sparks to fly. Keep a cell phone nearby and call 911 immediately in case of fire. Remember, one less spark is one less wildfire. The California Statewide Fire Prevention Program is grateful for your cooperation. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Rachel Coe, who's a professor of finance at, I always, I always have to look, CSUCI. It's kind of like a, a little rhyme to get it all out. But I have to say, teaching at a um, up-and-coming university like CI, do you find that um, finance is a more, more practical um, course study than just straight economics as a major? Or, or what would you say on the economics versus finance majors? Although finance is usually seen as more a uh, practical field, I think economics can be just as practical. Uh, it depends on what, what application we're talking about. Like finance is a financial application of economic theory. So Finance can be definitely more practical when it comes to money management, personal finance, investments, and wealth management, retirement planning, and so on. Um, but without knowing underlying economic and financial theory, application also has its limits. So um, finance can also be heavy on theory too. Um, eco- economics can be also pretty practical. Um, econometrics, for example, is the field of you know, how we use economic data and how we can apply regression and statistical tools to economic data. So it is, um, it is a really practical field. So speaking, um, of, speaking of ec- econometrics, uh, we've had people on that have said that the world has changed dramatically over the last two or three years. And a lot of the econometric models really don't hold up anymore uh, because things have changed. The world has changed. And just looking back at history may not be really a good indicator of the future. Have you found that to be uh, an issue? Yeah, as the world changes, the econometrics field also evolves together. Um, So there are a lot of tools being developed at the same time to accommodate the changing world. So a lot of models are still being used. it doesn't mean that regression is useless. A lot of studies uh, use regressions heavily and then and then um, use updated features of regression tools to, um, 
to fit in this changing world. When I took economics in college years ago, and in graduate school for that matter, uh, you didn't really need to be a great mathematician. But it seems to me that today, uh, mathematical skills are really a prerequisite. Is that the case? Yeah, being good at math definitely helps um, to get through a lot of business classes nowadays. Um, for Just for my finance class alone, um, for introduction to finance, math is an important prerequisite course. So being good at calculus and algebra um, is useful and being good at math um, will help you to become a, a better in finance and accounting and other business. You might've just crushed some people out there that aren't good at math, but wanted to go into oh, That was not my intention, but it's one of the things that give, can give you an edge. <laughs> Well, that settles it. I'm not going to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's good. Everyone's everyone's feeling better about it. <laughs> so given that you teach in the business school, um, how important do you think a liberal arts education is for business success? I think it's very important. I believe that well-rounded students who are educated in and interested in non-business fields like in history, in art, and like we just said, in math and whatnot, um, are more likely to have better critical thinking abilities and analytical skills and better networking skills and succeed. Um, so although being a finance researcher and instructor myself, um, I also try to be well-rounded too. Um, sometimes I don't want to be too just focused on finance and I want to broaden my knowledge too in other fields whenever I have a chance. There's a very scary article in today's Washington Post about pushback from parents who are rejecting many, many school districts' uh, emotional uh, intelligence curriculum. And what's particularly scary, because emotional intelligence is teaching people about kids about empathy, about uh, critical thinking, about uh, how to be a better human being. But there are so many pe parents in this in this country that are pushing back, saying they're indoctrinating uh, their children in a liberal uh, theory that they just reject. And it's just kind of scary because in order to succeed in business, you not only need a liberal arts education, uh, but you also need to be able to communicate and deal with people. So that's one of the really, this article really was kind of shocking. Oh, I bet. My goodness. Yeah. So Dr. Ko, what would you say, you know, given that a few weeks back, the Fed raised interest rates by a quarter of a point under, mo you know, if we had had this conversation in January, I think it was, you know, tr most people believed the Fed was going to raise 50 basis points. Um, but with the breakout of the um, Ukrainian war, the Fed decided to do a quarter point, but then also announced that they were planning on doing six more raises over the course of the year. What do you think, um, what do you think their actions are going to do? And do you actually, you know, what, what's your view on, on their um, aggressive raising interest rates, given our previous conversation in the first segment on stagflation and inflation and fighting both of them? Um, yeah, so the Fed announced um, uh, in the most recent FOMC uh, meeting that it would raise rates six more times, and each of them is expected to be around 25 basis point. 
So they're targeting about 2% um, interest rate by the end of this year. And they're, they're targeting uh, year-end inflation of about 4% to 5%. Um, so the question here is, you know, is it going to be enough to fight inflation? Because the current inflation is around 8%, hovering just below 8%. So, but normally, um, federal fund rates should be set higher than inflation to effectively fight inflation. But given the current level of high inflation, um, Powell, I don't think um, it is going to be enough to fight off inflation effectively. Um, you will have to increase rates more to really combat inflation um, because you know we, we just have really high inflation. And it seems to me that Powell is hoping for the inflation to go away um, sort of on its own, or the war would end and it would solve things. Well, don't so, you think that he's saying, you know, with the with the price of gas being as high as it is on a not, you know, not just here in California, which we're always getting, we always have high gas prices, but that some of that's going to suck the excess money out of the economy to help fight inflation. Do you think that that's his angle, or do you just think that he's hope and a prayer is his strategy? <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, so you're right, the, the oil price is so high and is contributing to a lot of the high inflation right now, but the oil price is, is you know, something that is caused by the war largely right now and the supply chain issue, and if the war ends, that will solve So um, I think we might want to take a break, Neil. Um, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just got invited to the prom. Do you A, meet her date? I need to see your past date report cards, your driver's license, a list of references, and this hair sample. B, help her pick out a dress. <gasps> Don't you just love the long sleeves and turtleneck on this pantsuit? Ugh. C, attend the prom undercover. Mom, what are you doing here? I'm not mom, I'm <clears throat> Calvin, the new kid at school. Or D, capture her big moment. Ugh. Let's take a photo of you two. I'm in the middle. When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers, but that's okay because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. When you visit the Santa Barbara Maritime Museum, you'll find kid-friendly activities, exhibits, events, and lectures for the entire family. And memberships to the Maritime Museum give you even more benefits. 
Here's Greg Gorga. So members get free admission all year long. We do these curated cocktails every month on our patio with wine and cheese, actually a full bar. They get invited to that. It's free for our Navigator Circle members and a small charge for our regular members. They get our newsletter, discounts in the store, discounts all over the harbor. So, you know, our family membership is $75. You get about $150 in discounts at the Sailing Center, Paddle Sports, Sea Landing with the Condor Express. So it pays at the Santa Barbara Marriott time museum you'll make money with all those discounts for more information about memberships to the santa barbara maritime museum go to sbmm.org or call 805-962-8404 welcome back to money talk brought to you by american riviera bank making your life easier with cutting-edge technology mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So Rachel, what are you more concerned about? Are you more concerned about inflation or stagflation? I think we've got another uh, frozen uh, guest. Yeah, (laughs) it's really, I hate it when we have frozen guests. Daniel, what are you more concerned about, stagflation or inflation? Well, you know, the, the, obviously inflation, but, you know, the, the problem is that stagflation, if it were to come, is much more difficult to deal with. And so the probability is that we won't have stagflation, but uh, if we do, it's really uh, the tools that the Fed has are really geared for inflation, not deflation, as we saw with the 20-year uh, issues in um, in, uh, in, uh, in Japan. Uh, the other thing that uh, is really interesting is, you know, our, our guest talked about if the Ukraine war is, um, is settled, that could help. But, you know, the question is, how much of the supply chain has nothing to do with Ukraine? And how much of the supply chain problems really have to do with uh, systemic problems that won't, won't be uh, dealt with that quickly. And so inflation could end up being a problem that uh, higher interest rate just can't solve if the supply uh, problems remain endemic. Absolutely. And so, um, Dr. Cole, now that you're back with us, you know, what are your thoughts on inflation versus stagflation? I definitely have more concerns about stagflation happening because it's harder to fix and it takes longer to get out of. So with inflation alone, which is what we have, um, contractionary um, monetary policy will be able to solve it um, to a great extent. Uh, But if we have um, stagnation in addition, then um, things are gonna be a lot more difficult to uh, fix. The government will be put in a dilemma as it cannot use uh, expansionary policies to get out of stagnation um, because it will bring inflation, but inflation is already there. So, um, so the, the question is, you know, is stagflation coming? Um, it is possible that it might. Um, the Fed recent increase in the rates will bring um, step, uh, stagnation, slow economic growth, because in the recent press, uh, Fed did, uh, project, did project a lower GDP growth, and CPI is projected to be higher, which is indicative of 
um, saturation. But um, we will just have to see what happens in the market and what how the uh, how the market respond to the rate increases. So now, can you have in, can you have stagflation when you have wage growth and you have so many open jobs that people are you know as there as the, the attraction in order to attract new employees you have to pay more. It doesn't feel to me to be a stag a stagnant. Uh, or a stagflationary concerned given the labor force and what's going on there. But, you know, I am not an economist. Yeah, so that's one of the things that Powell was very optimistic about. He said that there is a lower probability of recession pointing to the fact that we actually have a very strong job market um, um, and our GDP uh, growth has been, uh, has been on, on the good side. But the question is, what will happen going forward, right? Will, will we have a quick uh, acceleration of things, um, you know, unfolding in an unfavorable way in our economy? Will things accelerate and rapidly resemble like what we had back in 1970s when we had our uh, most recent big stagflation? Um, yes, it is possible that things might accelerate, but I also want to be optimistic in the power of, you know, the, uh, you know, the what the Fed is saying and how the public, uh, how much faith the public has in the Fed's actions. So we're talking now about uh, current issues. Uh, how much uh, of current issues do you allow into the classroom? So you're teaching economics and finance, and there are, are you know, uh, academic issues. But do you permit the class to raise their hand and ask about what's going on in the news? every day, every week? I do try to integrate uh, what's going on right now in, uh, in the news to uh, teaching in class. So we have frequent discussions about, you know, nowadays what we're talking about is the effect of the war, the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine on the global economy and on the financial markets. And students get to think about it and they, we all, we talk about it and participate. That's great because that's really how people learn is when they're they're uh, experiencing it in real terms as well. Which leads me to my next question about how much of the inflation that's being quoted today do you think is due to the supply chain disruption, and how long is the supply chain disruption? Do you anticipate it being with us? Like, how long is it going to be before you, chips are going to be flowing again for a new car? You know, th those are the questions that I think a lot of people have. Yes, a supply chain disruption is causing some economic costs on, uh, right now. So how long will it stay with us? Um, well, we ha first have to go back to how it was caused in the first place. So it was first initiated by the pandemic you know, the demand for electronic devices you know, surged as people were working from home. And because of the lockdowns in factories, there was shortage of labor and manufacturing. Um, and there was, uh, moreover, um, ongoing trade war with China, which, you know, fueled the supply chain fragility. So supply shocks are definitely harder to resolve. There isn't, seem, there isn't, an immediate cure for um, resolving this supply chain issue. Um, and all the more, the 
war in uh, between Russia and Ukraine um, is adding to the oil price surge. And that was aggregated by the economic sanctions. So really the war would have to end to, uh, to improve this uh, situation right now with supply uh, shortage in oil. So aside from oil, what other economic impacts is the, is the war in Ukraine going to have for the globe? I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, it, Ukraine really is the breadbasket for much of Africa. What, what are the effects of that going to be? The war is uh, costly. It takes a toll on um, many countries' economy. And we are living through some of the immediate effects of the war. Um, countries have posed economic sanctions on Russia, has banned Russia from global banking system. Um, and a, the aim of all those these actions is to pressure Russia into surrendering. Um, and, and Russia is actually uh, bearing the brunt of these sanctions, but the rest of the world is also feeling the negative consequences of these sanctions. And most notably through this rise in the oil price, and also the overall inflation and volatility and uncertainty in the financial markets. Um, and also um, the corporations that have operations and investments in Russia are now having to deal with you know, sacrificing some of its sales to pull out from Russia due to the moral issues. And um, you know they have invested so much to establish business ties and operations in Russia, and now they're pressured to withdraw. So it might really hurt their sales and profits as well. How much of um, you know when it, when the war originally broke out? You know, much of the commentary was that Russia's economy was so small relative to the world that it wouldn't have much of an impact. But do you happen to know what the, you know, the multinational corporations, how much of their investment is in, in Russia? So I don't have like exact figure, but um, the, US, uh, the US corporations do have, a, you know, quite a big share of investments and operations in Russia especially for oil companies that have just started building these um, pipelines going from going into Russia or going out of Russia. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know for, uh, for exact detail, but I do know that a lot of international businesses is, has been in Russia. You're listening to Money Talk and we'll be right back with our final segment. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite 
invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB0-72220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB0-72528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. FM radio, as we know it, began this month in 1941. That's when the first commercial FM station went on the air in Nashville, Tennessee. World War II interrupted the advance of FM, or frequency modulation, broadcasting, which slowly began to gain popularity in the 1950s. Today, some 80,000 people work in the country's 17,500 stations, of which nearly 13,000 broadcast on the FM band. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Dr. Ko, um, you know, in, in our last segment, what are your thoughts on behavioral finance and how do you see it? Um, how, how do you teach it and how do you see it playing out in the real world? And what is it? And define it, please. All right, so behavioral finance is um, you know, looking at the financial market phenomena through the lens of people's behavior, how we behave, and sometimes people behave, um, people's behavior can deviate from the rational expectations. So I think behavioral finance is important, uh, especially when it comes to individual wealth management. Uh, people are prone to many behavioral biases. We sometimes think we know better than others. We don't want to find evidence that contradicts our beliefs. We have fear of missing out. We like to follow what others do and et cetera. Um, here's where investment advisors can come in and be useful and helpful in guiding their clients to construct an optimal portfolio um, given the level of their wealth uh, risk preferences and background of the clients. You know, they can study whether their client's behavior can be moderated or adopted. It's especially important nowadays, investors who you know, know their behavioral tendencies can you know, do better, can fare better in this time of volatile financial markets. Um, it's important to be not caught um, psychologically in the short-term ups and downs of the financial markets. Um, people who exhibit these behavioral tendencies uh, can leave the market when the market drops by like 10 to 15%, let's say, but the, when the prices get quickly corrected, they will be disappointed. So I know that we are seeing a lot of news right now about the impact of war, 
inflation, the Fed actions. But sometimes, you know, it's better when if you know don't let the news um, scare you out of stocks. You know, if you're in it for the long term, um, don't let the media scare you too much. So that's something that behavioral finance. Um, uh, teaches, teaches us what to do in these times. But you know what's so interesting? Over the 50 years, one of the precepts behind economics and finance was the first assumption, uh, the public is rational and uh, will act in a, in a way that can be predictive. And so, you know, we don't want to belittle the, the, the major seminal shift when you talk about behavioral finance. You're, you're really going against what has been years and years of, of generally academic belief. Uh, I mean, there are two camps uh, from the way I see. There's the rational camp who believes that the markets are really rational and efficient almost always. And there's another camp who have who are the behavioralists who say that you know behavioral biases can have systematic effect on the financial markets. And from my research, um, I actually find in my study that um, some of the market anomalies that we observe they are there because um, there are behavioral biases that are affecting um, the market prices systematically and significantly. Now, is behavioral finance something you teach in the classroom? Uh, I'm not, there's not a course yet called behavioral finance, but I definitely incorporate a lot of behavioral elements when I teach my investments course. And are the students, um, how, how, are, how do the students react to the behavioral finance piece? They're definitely easier to connect to um, because we all know that we are, we have biases and we cannot reject that. So it's easier to connect the classroom materials to personal experiences. So it's actually easier to uh, get their interest and engage them. Uh, Dr. Ko, uh, Professor of Finance at CSUCI, thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk and we'll see you next week.